Yeah, so we've been um, in our series for a while, Colony, and, you know, we have this beehive out here, and it reminds us that, um, you know, we are meant to live in a world and influence it positively, that as we go from place to place and moment to moment, we would be making deposits that affect the world around us and help the world look more like it's supposed to look and help reveal the realities of life and God and that we would be people who kind of dispense the fruit of the Spirit, those things being love and joy and peace and patience and so on. And so we've talked about a lot of big ideas, religion and politics and all kinds of things. And tonight we're talking about something that for me has just been like a huge I think, eye-opening experience over the last month as I've kind of tried to dive deep into this. And we're going to talk about racism tonight. And we're going to talk about what that means and how we experience it and maybe how some of those things are existing around us in ways that we don't even see. And um, I've tried, you know, hard to go and, and find voices that can help expand my perspective and my understanding about what that may even look like because I sure know that I don't experience those things firsthand on a daily basis uh, to the degree that most people um, maybe would. And so um, I really want us to kind of get at the heart of why we are putting ourselves against each other at times. And, you know, I was actually supposed to teach this message on Sunday the 12th, two Sundays ago, and I woke up and saw a bunch of text messages from friends saying, what are we going to do tonight? And I didn't even know what they were talking about, and I got online, and I saw the horrific news of the shooting at Pulse, and over the last two weeks, it's so apparent that you know, we experience these divisions in culture that are sometimes because of race or sometimes because of sexuality or sometimes because of gender or sometimes because of nationality. And we as a people have to proactively combat the things that divide us. And so tonight I want us to look deep at why we even move in that direction. And let's just start right now by closing our eyes and taking a moment to just breathe in, taking a moment to allow the Holy Spirit to come and soften us. Because I know that there are triggers in so many directions about this topic specifically. So just take a moment to breathe in and breathe out and relax and allow the Holy Spirit to come and just begin softening us to the things that God would want to say to us tonight. God, what a beautiful thing it is that you, like, give us the opportunity to literally transform culture. To literally make our experience on a daily basis an experience as we interact with people in the world around us that reveals the realities of heaven. That we are people who have the opportunity to manifest heaven around us. God, I pray that in some small or giant way tonight, you would use us to put an end to the hate that we have for one another. 
the things that stir up in our hearts and our minds, the systems that advantage some and disadvantage others. God, I pray that we would have our eyes opened to those things and that we would be cognizant of those things and we would be conscious of those things. And God, we would work to proactively together lift people up into a place of thriving together. Call us into something giant tonight. And help us love the world with the love of Jesus. Amen. And so tonight, as we look at that big idea, what are some of the things that kind of lay underneath that? And I want us to kind of, kind of come back to this idea tonight. A poverty mindset leads us to the oppression of others. But the revolution of Jesus calls us to work for the thriving of all. And as I've looked over and over again at some of these systems and some of these ideas, and even inside of my own heart, at the end of the day, this poverty mindset, the idea that there are limited resources and there are limited jobs and there are limited opportunities, and I as a human being can look at the others around me and say, how can I oppress you or how can I push you down? And society has created systems so that some thrive and others don't because we have a poverty mindset that says the resources are limited and I need to come out on top. But God is doing something in the hearts of people to free us from the fear that binds us up. And it begins to free us into the life that says, how can I stoop to serve the people around me and lift them up into a better place? And how can I join hands with the people around me and together we move into a place that says it is our ideal, it is our hope, and it is our belief that we can rise together. And as we get into this, I just want to kind of clarify a few definitions. And the first of those is prejudice, and then the second of those is racism. And what is the difference between those two things? Prejudice is the preconception of someone based on an attribute. And I think we just need to acknowledge tonight that all of us have prejudices. Because until we're willing to acknowledge that reality, I don't think that we can step out of them. And so what are the prejudices that we experience? And I'm just going to be open and honest with you tonight. I was in the public's parking lot a couple of weeks ago, and there was this person of a particular ethnicity walking down the middle of the roadway, and I was getting frustrated, and there was something inside of me that went to blaming their ethnicity for their actions. And for me, I just want to be honest to say I'm not perfect when it comes to prejudice. And I hope that we can all say that we're not perfect when it comes to prejudice. A couple months ago, I was holding a campaign sign on the edge of a street corner in downtown Orlando. And there were people who would drive by and honk and smile and every time an old white guy drove by, he gave me a nasty look and snarled his face. And I started thinking, old white guys are really bitter people. <laughs> and I began to build up inside of myself a prejudice to old white guys. And it is a conscious decision to say, I am not going to do that. I am not going to be one of those people. I am going to combat that thing inside of me that says, no, 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 you start putting people down. You start thinking about these people in that way. And instead, turning that 
cursing into a blessing. And so prejudice is the preconception of someone based on an attribute, whereas racism is systematic power leading to domination over a group because of race. And so it's when we take those prejudices and we say, you know what, this is the way I feel about those people over there, the other over there. And because I feel that way about them, I'm going to begin creating systems, be utilizing, dis, uh, uh, abusing my power to oppress other people because of my prejudices against them. And so prejudices are the way we think about people based on attributes, whereas racism are systematic abuses of power leading to domination over someone else. And there's a really simple example I want to look at tonight to kind of think about this idea of racism, and I need two volunteers, if you will. Steve, wow, and Garrett, yes. Thanks, guys. All right, you played Monopoly before? All right, so here's... Uh, Steve, Garrett, can you come over here? McDonald's Monopoly, right. All right. So, you know, there may be some Snickers here, but it's like a really, became a really real example to me when I started thinking about this thing. And so when we play Monopoly, like there's rules, right? Oh, Gary, you're in front of the projector, okay. buddy. <laughs> there's rules when we play Monopoly, right? Like everybody starts with a certain denomination of bills, a certain amount of money, and everybody kind of has this equal playing field. And I think Monopoly is a really great example, if we don't play by those rules, of how we have established systems of power in our country specifically that lead to the favoring of some and the oppression of others. Um, so, Steve, congratulations, you're going to hold the bank. I'm sorry, Garrett. No, I don't want it. <laughs> you don't want it? Too much power. Okay. I can't count Great. And the reality of our system of structures is that when we were founding our country, there were people who owned the entire bank. And there were other people who didn't own a thing at all. And then there was something called the Homestead Act in 1892, I think. And it was the opportunity for people to move westward and claim land. They could spend $18 and get, I think, 160 acres. And at the time, um, African Americans in our country weren't considered citizens. And so there was a seven-year period where they were ineligible to be part of the Homestead Act. And then even when the 14th Amendment was passed, um, there were systems that were still in place that allowed them to not be part of the Homestead Act. And it was uh, a period of um, almost 100 years until the 60s when Lyndon Johnson created additional rules and laws that prevented people from oppressing the African-American population in our country and preventing them from voting. And so as a result of that, there were a lot of opportunities for white people in our culture who had benefited from the Homestead Act to begin using the things that they own and the property that they were able to have to begin creating businesses on the land that was given to them by the United States government. And so they were able to take their bank and buy houses and buy properties. And I had 
moments of participation that I haven't invited you into. So thank you for just standing here. I apologize about that. And so here's the thing. So here we are in 2016, and I've heard so many times in my life that we're on an equal playing field. And if you just try hard enough, then you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps because everybody has the same starting point. But the reality is that there are hundreds of years, literally hundreds of years of systematic oppression that have set some up for thriving and have given others that not that opportunity. And so if we were to start this game, we'll give Steve the race car and he'll be on go over here and we'll give Garrett maybe the wheelbarrow because it's far faster and it, in, it, it symbolizes a heavy load. And then if we begin playing this game, is it fair to me to look at Garrett and say, Garrett, it's an even playing field. If you just try really hard, you can do as well as Steve. <laughs> and I think it's okay for us to like nervously laugh at that reality but I think it's something that we really have to think about. And this stuff, me as a 35-year-old, are things that I found out about in the last two months. I've lived my whole life believing that Garrett had the same opportunities as Steve. And if Garrett just worked really hard, then he could make it. But it's not true. And so that begs the question, what do we do about it? Thank you, guys. Yeah. Say thanks to these guys for standing here with me. Ah, oh, it's heavy, right? And it feels big and it feels systematic and it feels really old and it feels like maybe there's nothing we can do about it. But tonight I want us to first begin transforming our own hearts and then looking broadly at what we can do to begin subverting these systems that have been in place for a really long time that oppress people, like literally oppress people. <sighs> and, and can we just like get behind this tonight? There's a difference between prejudice and racism, but today let's purge both of them from our lives and let's purge both of them from our culture because it doesn't honor God and it doesn't represent his heart for people. So where does all of this come from? Like why did all of this start? And I think like honestly, in some like twisted carnal way at the very heart of like the carnal nature of who we are, racism is built into us. Our tendency toward tribalism leads us to consciously or subconsciously justify our racism. So as humanity was kind of like coming up into its own, we grew up in tribes and we grew up in tribes and it said, I need to protect my own and I need to kind of like look at the other people who are in different tribes and put them down and kill them because they are a threat to my survival. Because there's only so much corn and there's only so much land and there are only so many houses and there are only so many women. And so I'm going to look at those people over there and I'm going to develop a mental construct that just says it's easy for me to think about my own and it's easy for me to oppose 
others. And we've grown up in this anthropological reality that says people who are not like me are a threat to my survival because I have a poverty mindset. And it says to me there is a a limited number of resources and I need to put down whoever I can in order to get everything that I can. And like tribalism helps us know who is in and who is out. It actually helps us make sense of the world. There are some positive components to tribalism. It's the reason there aren't oranges on the toothpaste aisle at the grocery store. Like tribalism helps us assemble the world around us. Categories help us understand the world around us. And there are some really beautiful parts of tribalism. Tribal, tribes are good when they are a source of love. We all have an innate need to belong. But they are evil when they are a source of hate. And that's the difference between belonging to a tribe and having a family and cliques. We need a tribe, but nobody likes mean girls. And as I was thinking about that, I actually went from reading this academic article about tribes and racism to watching the trailer for Mean Girls because I had never seen it before. (laughs) But I was like, I think that's probably a good example of what we're talking about here. And it was. It was awful. Like, we need to purge that mentality. And like, we laugh about that, but we live that way every day. I'm on the inside and everybody else is on the outside and I'm good and they're bad and I need to create systems and structures and mentalities to protect my own. And I do that at the expense of every other tribe around me. But tribes are good when they're a source of love and they are evil when they are a source of hate. But let's go one step deeper than tribalism and scarcity into this concept, that fear is the root of racism and prejudice. A fear of losing jobs or a fear of not having, you know, food to eat or a fear of not having land. Like, these are long-held fears, and they're things that, we're, that we have to overcome. And here's the thing, like, fear speaks to the unthinking part of who we are. Fear speaks to kind of the carnal man inside of us. And one of the things I love about life in God, one of the things that I love about the reality of the redemptive nature of Jesus is that Jesus illuminates our minds and our hearts and our spirits to become aware of the unseen things operating in the world around us. And we move from just operating out of the carnal places that have these immediate responses and into thinking about how our actions and how our tendencies destroy the people around us and how we can turn the corner into lifting other people up. We see this in politics all the time. Some candidates, and I won't mention names tonight, simply don't have to put forth policies They don't have to put forth good ideas. They don't have to justify their positions because everything they're building their campaigns on is built on the carnal nature of fear inside of people. And we have to be people who are aware when we're listening to somebody talking on television or the radio about the thing that they're speaking to inside of us. 
Are they painting a picture for us of a bigger, better reality where we come together to see people thriving in the world and for the world to look more like heaven? Or are they speaking to the carnal fears inside of us? So let's be aware of that. In 1 John 4, 18, it says there is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. When we are operating in fear, we are not operating in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. You and I are called into the love of God, the unconditional love of God that gives us a foundation for safety and provision and allows us to live a life of faith so we can rise above the fear that restricts us and that we would be people who overcome the root of fear that results in both racism and prejudice. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And again, here it is right here. Like when we are in God, we move from reacting in fear to a place of operating in power. We're no longer subjected to the, the, the snap judgment responses of our fear, but instead we begin living in power with a sound mind, a sound heart, a sound spirit. We begin operating out of love where we see other people as God sees them and we lift them up and we have a sound thinking mind that is connected with the, the mind of Christ that is transformed so that we begin lifting people up into the places where they are meant to be. Fear is the root of racism and prejudice, but life in God leads to the defeat of fear. Life in God leads to the defeat of fear. And so we have this idea that like that there is a different, uh, sorry, we have this idea that our tendency toward tribalism leads us to, con to consciously or subconsciously justify our racism, but there's a bigger and better truth tonight. And it's that the revolution of Jesus is to see the value of people and to overthrow the systems of power that oppress people. The revolution of Jesus is to see the value of people and to overthrow the systems of power that oppress. There are scriptural examples of oppression rooted in a poverty mindset. You may know the story of Jonah. God told Jonah to go to the people of Nineveh and tell them that God wanted them to change their lives. And because Jonah hated the people of Nineveh, he chose to run three times from the command of God, for the call of God, for Jonah to go and tell the people of Nineveh it was time to change and that God wanted them for himself. But Jonah hated the people of Nineveh so much, his uh, his prejudices toward the people of Nineveh caused him to run from the command of God and the loving heart of God for the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria and the Assyrians were the enemies of Israel where Jonah lived. Jonah had a prejudiced perception of the people of Nineveh and it caused him to run from the call of God to go and love the people of Nineveh well. But the opposite is this beautiful example from the life of Jesus. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, is moving along as the Lord is leading him, and he comes into Samaria. And Jesus, who was a Jew, did not interact with Samaritans. 
The Jewish people and the Samaritan people were kind of in the same way very much at odds with one another, relationally, culturally, from a national standpoint. And Jesus goes to this woman who is sitting on the edge of a well and he sits with her and he talks with her and he loves her. And her response to him is, why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan? Jews and Samaritans don't talk to each other. And it wasn't even that. Later on in this same passage, we see the disciples coming and they see Jesus. And not only are they surprised that he's talking to a Samaritan, they're surprised that he's talking to a woman. It wasn't only this racial issue, there was this gender tension as well. But Jesus overcame the conceptions of the world that put him at odds culturally and racially and from a gender perspective with this woman and he sat with her and he loved her and he ministered to her and they had a real life conversation about her and her life and who he was. And I think that picture is a part of this big thing, this big string that we see woven through the whole concept of God's history, God's story with people. And we've talked about this string before, but I want to talk about it here again. And it goes all the way back to kind of this beginning point in the book of Genesis in chapter 22. God, in this vision, appears to Abram, one of these spiritual forefathers. And as they are in this moment together, this supernatural, mystical moment, God is calling Abram into this place of becoming a blessing for all nations. And he says this to Abram, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. From the very beginning, it was God's heart that those people in relationship with him would not simply be in relationship with him for the betterment and benefit of themselves, but the entire story of God and people is so that God would bless those who are in relationship with him, who would then therefore turn outward and stoop down to serve other people and lift them up and become a blessing to the world. And even from the beginning, that is the conversation we see God having with people. In Acts, and then we we have the life of Jesus, and we have stories like Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and we see Jesus painting a picture of a world united under the banner of God. Up until that point, most of the ways that people segmented and separated themselves were by national borders or races. And we see Jesus doing things like this, going and sitting with a Samaritan woman and saying, no, 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 there's a better way to do this. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up at Pentecost and he quotes this passage from the Old Testament book of Joel. And Peter, again, kind of continues to open up this door of us moving beyond the things that separate us from one another. And he says this, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And he goes on to paint this picture of how God is continuing to open the door of blessing to people. 
And what Peter is saying in that moment is you see all this stuff happening right here at Pentecost. It's not just so that these people in this upper room should be blessed. No, remember that thing that was said to Abram that God would begin blessing people so that we could turn around and bless the world around us. Later on in Colossians chapter 3, Paul is writing and he says, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarians, Gideon, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And again, we see the door being opened wider and wider as God continues to weave this thread of openness and relationship and unity among his story of his people. And then we have this prophetic word in the book of Revelation. I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they were there together declaring the holiness and the goodness of God from every tribe, nation, tongue, language, and race. And we see this trajectory of God that says no longer are we separated by the things that our carnal nature, our sinful nature would cause us to be separated by. No, instead in Christ, as our lives are transformed and the blessing of God comes into our life, he transforms us to love the world well and to welcome one another inward so that we can live in relationship with one another. When Jesus frees us of our fear, we are opened to imagining a world beyond scarcity and instead full of thriving. There was this moment in the ministry of Jesus where the disciples argued about power. Jesus was about to kind of go to the cross and the disciples were having this argument. Who's going to sit at the right hand of Jesus? And they were having this argument that was putting them against one another because of scarcity. There's only one seat next to Jesus, was their perspective. And I love Jesus' response in this moment. And I think it says a word to us when we start thinking broadly about how we overcome these systems of thinking inside of ourselves, how we transform our hearts. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, he has this child next to him. He brings this child next to him. And he says, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. And I love that Jesus points at this child in this moment where the disciples were divided because of this fear of scarcity. Because children have the ability to imagine. Children are not threatened by scarcity. Children have the ability to love one another without being tainted by the divisions that we develop over our lifetimes that say, I need to get my own and everybody else is a threat to that objective. Children have the beautiful ability to imagine. I mean, I remember like being a little kid and we had this Dalmatian whose name was Josh. Josh the Dalmatian. <laughs> And I would go out into the backyard and I'd put him on this leash. And there was like this, literally this path that was worn in the grass of our backyard. 
because we ran the path so often. And I would imagine Josh as a lion and we were in the circus together and I was taking him around the ring and all the people were looking in amazement at this lion. Children have the ability to imagine really amazing and beautiful things. And that imagination, if we are to recapture the imagination of a child that allows us to go beyond the things that would divide us, it begins affecting every piece of our life. Several years ago, I went to the Dominican Republic with a group of people, and we were just there to love and serve the people in this neighborhood um, that we were in. And it was a really poverty-stricken neighborhood. And as you do when you go on a mission trip, like you take candy, right, and you hand it out to kids, and they love it. And, and maybe you've experienced this before, because I've experienced it in other places, not just on this trip in the Dominican Republic, where we would give these things to these children who are living in a very real experience of scarcity, and they would turn around and they would hand that candy to their friends because they weren't afraid. They weren't living a life based on scarcity and fear that put them at opposition with everybody else around them. So this is the last thing here. What can we do? Because I know that kind of that example over there in particular feels really overwhelming and institutional and deeply rooted in history. But I think as we look toward a better future, it begins with us asking, how do I change my heart and my actions every day of my life? And I want to give us three really practical things that we can do to overcome our prejudices and begin to subvert the systems that perpetuate racism. And I'd love for you to write these down if you want to pull out your phone. And maybe even as we sing these next few songs, think about how you can do these things really specifically in your life. I'll give you a second to pull that out if you want to. So there are three things that we can do to begin overcoming our own prejudices and to subvert these systems of racism. One, kill fear and transform your thinking. Like that moment that I had in the public's parking lot, I had to consciously go to God and say, kill this thing inside of me that, that just like pushes me to think about people in the wrong way. Kill it inside of me and replace it with a new way of thinking and feeling. That's the power of God inside of us. If we're not being transformed in our thinking and in our feeling, we're missing the boat. Allow the Holy Spirit to come inside of us, kill our fear, and transform our thinking. Two, be aware of your prejudiced thoughts and turn them around into blessing. I don't think it's enough. I don't think it's enough for us just to like kill this thing and then be neutral. Our objective is never to be neutral. Our objective is to take those things that would come up inside of us that would cause us to curse others and take that curse and flip it on its head to become a blessing. Don't just go to neutral. When we have those moments where we would hate the other, turn it around into blessing. That could be so powerful. If this room of people, this room of people right here became people of blessing 
every time a curse reared its head inside of us, we would become people of blessing. And lastly, this. And this is how we subvert those systems. Use your wealth of money or power to elevate others. Use your wealth of money or power to elevate others. Become, ready? Buzzwords. <laughs> Become a willing socialist. Our country is founded on this internal fight and this lie that says you are the center of the universe and your rights and your thriving are the most important thing, which is totally contrary to the message of Jesus. Totally contrary to the message of Jesus. Everything about our American system of government says that your rights are the most important thing. And everything about the message of Jesus says, lay down your life so that others can live. We have to think long and hard about that. If we're going to be a truly transformed people, use your wealth of money. If you have money, and I can probably guarantee you that even if today you think you are poor, you are more wealthy than like 98% of people in the world. Use your wealth of money to elevate others. And each of us, each of us has a realm of influence. And if your realm of influence is built on making yourself puffed up, check your heart. Allow God to come in and transform you that you would be like Abram in that moment where you would stoop down before the face of God, before the throne of God, and say every ounce of blessing and power that you give me is a tool and an opportunity to be stewarded, to elevate other people. Let's stand together. Let's close our eyes. And as we do so often, just open your hands in front of you. There's nothing magical about it. It's just a symbol of surrender, of open-handedness. And maybe you want to even like clench your fists first and think about something that you're holding really tightly to. Maybe it's a right that you have fought really hard to keep. Maybe it's the dollar bills that you fight really hard to keep. Maybe it's the power that you fight really hard to keep or the notoriety or whatever it may be. And then just symbolically open your hands and say, I want this blessing in my life to be turned around and be made a blessing to the world around me. That I would get on my knees before other people and count them better than me. God, make us servants. Redeem our perception of what it means to serve. And like you came in the form of Jesus and laid down your life, God, would we too lay down our lives for the world around us? And 
let us rise hand in hand together.